Welcome to Reinvent Healthcare, a podcast for health and wellness practitioners passionately committed to transforming our current broken disease-focused system. Your host, Dr. Rita Marie Loscalzo, is devoted to helping you get results with complex health challenges like autoimmune, hormonal imbalances, and chronic health challenges caused by nutritional and lifestyle-induced imbalances. Here's your host, Dr. Rita Marie. Welcome back to Reinvent Healthcare, the podcast for health and wellness practitioners who are passionate about making a difference. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about hyperthyroidism and Graves' disease with Dr. Eric Osansky. He's the author of Natural Treatment Solutions for Hyperthyroidism and Graves and Hashimoto's Trigger. So he's bilingual here in terms of thyroid. He's also the host of the Save My Thyroid podcast and the founder of the Natural Endocrine Solutions website. He's a chiropractor, a clinical nutritionist, and a certified functional medicine practitioner with over 20 years of experience in health and wellness, and has been helping people with thyroid and autoimmune conditions since 2009. I invited him here because he's one of the few practitioners who actually specialize in hyperthyroid. Most functional practitioners who work with thyroid actually focus more on Hashimoto's and hypothyroid. So I'm going to let him tell you how he actually got into this himself. So welcome, Eric. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you so much, Dr. Rita Marie. I'm excited to be here. And like you said, so many practitioners focus on hypothyroidism, Hashimoto's, and it comes down to my health journey, why I help people with more so with hyper. Like you said, I also help people with both hyper and hypo, but more so on the hyper side, just because that was my experience dealing with your experience and you couldn't find anybody who knew about it and you had to (laughs) learn yourself. So tell us a little bit about that and what you did and how you turned that around. This happened in 2008 and I was dieting and detoxifying. So I was losing weight, had an increased appetite, but I had no idea it was related to the hyperthyroidism. I figured it was just what I was doing with the caloric restriction and exercising and Long story short, I was walking in a Sam's Club one day and they had one of those automated blood pressure machines, sat down, took my blood pressure, which was fine, but my heart rate was elevated. And I thought, well, maybe it was because I was walking around the Sam's Club, but still Mm -hmm. it was higher than I would have expected. So the next few days I was taking my heart rate and it remained elevated and then kind of put in the pieces of the puzzle together. I wasn't too familiar with hyperthyroidism. I was familiar with it, but never knew anybody, honestly, who dealt with hyperthyroidism before (laughs) and eventually went to a regular primary care doctor, got some blood tests done, was diagnosed with hyperthyroidism, eventually went to an endocrinologist and was diagnosed with Graves. And Mm -hmm. even though it was my first experience dealing with hyperthyroidism, I was practicing then as just a regular chiropractor. As far as my continuing education credits, I would always take nutritional courses. Most chiropractors would take technique courses and all that. And so I was always taking in nutrition. So there were a couple of functional endocrinology courses. And I'm not sure if you know Dr. Janet Lang. She taught Mm -hmm. like one of them in the past, long time ago. And anyway, so I knew I was going to take a natural approach, even though I was skeptical. I didn't know if I would be able to restore my health, but I just had faith that I'm like, I'm going to try to avoid the medication if I can. But long story short, I took a natural treatment approach, got into remission, been in remission since 2009. 
And since then, I was so excited about the results I received and knowing that there's so many people out there with thyroid and autoimmune thyroid conditions. That's what I've been focusing on ever since. That's awesome. And here's the thing. Our audience is mostly health practitioners and health coaches, chiropractors, MDs, but a lot of people are just people. You know how those people are, right? The people that come and see us, they want to know more. So they take all the practitioner stuff too. But the thing is that most people who are diagnosed with hyperthyroidism end up either getting on medications that destroy their thyroid or they get on some sort of radiation treatment that destroys their thyroid. And then they're hypothyroid for the rest of their lives and have to take medication. And for you to save yourself from that and to save patients from that, that's something I brought you on because I want to share that with our practitioners because we need to know that like, oh yeah, I know how to handle Hashimoto's and hypothyroid, but okay, somebody's autoimmune graves hyper, let's send them on their way. So I really appreciate you coming on here and talking to us about this. And you said there's a lot of people. So what percentage of the population, if you know that, are affected by hyperthyroid and Graves? According to the research in the United States, a little bit less than 1% is okay. the prevalence. And then for some reason in Europe, it's a little bit above 1%, a little bit higher. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely not as prevalent as hypothyroidism, Hashimoto's, yeah. but still common. There's still a lot of people out there with hyperthyroidism. And like you said, unfortunately, a lot of them ends up getting their thyroid glands removed or ablated. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times they just don't know what other options are out there. And they're certainly not going to be told that by their doctors and their endocrinologists because they don't know that. And they kind of don't believe us. Oh, it's just a fluke, right? I mean, did your endocrinologist actually believe that what you did made a difference? Or did they just tell you it was a fluke? I only saw my endocrinologist one time. <laughs> I went for the first visit, got diagnosed, got an ultrasound, and there was really no need to continue because I wasn't going to take the medication unless if I absolutely yeah. needed to. And thankfully yeah. I didn't. And then yeah. I just got my own blood test. So really there was no need to see her, but I will say most patients, their endocrinologists are kind of like in denial. And when they go back to them and they say, oh yeah, look, everything is looking great. My blood test and I'm feeling good. And they just, yeah, they kind of do just say, oh, it's a fluke or it's a coincidence and diet doesn't make a difference. And there are exceptions, but, but most of them are definitely not on board with the natural treatment approach. It's sad. And I know in hypothyroid and Hashimoto's is like probably autoimmune is 90% of all the cases of hypothyroid out there. What percentage would you say of all the hypers are actually graves? I had the feeling that it was much higher percentage of hyperthyroid is actually graves. It's probably similar. I think it's right around 90%. It might be slightly okay. higher, but I'd say number one would be Definitely Graves. And then after that, I do see some people with like toxic multinodule goiter, but that's not nearly as prevalent. Definitely most are around the 90% range for that as well. What triggers this? Is it similar to what causes most autoimmune diseases? Is it similar to what causes Hashimoto's? But the question is, how do some people have those triggers and get the hyper and others get the hypo? So I'd love to hear your perspective on that, given that you've worked with both. As you mentioned, one of my books is called Hashimoto's Trigger. So I dove into the research when it comes to different triggers. So, I mean, there's definitely overlap when it comes to different autoimmune conditions. So I can't say that these triggers are exclusive to Graves' disease and these triggers are exclusive to Hashimoto's and multiple sclerosis. There's 
really four main categories of triggers I discuss, and that's food, stress, chemical, infection. And there's others, like some will say nutrient deficiencies. I think of those more as underlying imbalances and like actual triggers. But there are some triggers that seem to be more common with Graves than Hashimoto's. Stress, for example, I think is a potential factor, if not trigger in many mm -hmm. different health conditions. But there's research showing the connection between stress and Graves' disease. And I'm pretty sure that was a big factor when I dealt with Graves. And it's emotional stressors, of course, is important. But one thing also I was doing prior to being diagnosed, I was overtraining, which sometimes we overlook mm -hmm. that stressor on the body. So yeah, stress is, again, from what I see in practice, I, a lot of the Hashimoto's patients also mention stress, but I would say probably more so the graves. But either way, stress is a big trigger. H. pylori, I see both graves and Hashimoto's, but probably more in my graves patients. As far as percentage-wise, again, I see more hyperthyroid patients in general. So, of course, I'm going to see more H. pylori. But I'd say percentage-wise, still probably more prevalent in Graves. And the literature is also Hashimoto's, but it seems to point a little bit more in the hyperthyroid and the Graves mm -hmm. direction. Uh, other than that, like I said, gluten is a potential factor with both you know, Graves, Hashimoto's, other autoimmune conditions, other autoimmune. And, and environmental toxins like mercury, heavy metals, and xenoestrogens, and with both Graves, Hashimoto's, other autoimmune conditions. But those are some of the more common triggers. Again, the Hashimoto's triggers, I go into great detail. Viruses, big trigger, not only for Graves, but then there's subacute thyroiditis, which is not mm -hmm. autoimmune. And typically, it's like a transient form of hyperthyroidism right. and could be caused by multiple viruses, include the most recent one we've dealt with. Parasites also, again, I would say maybe I see a little bit more of my Hashimoto's patients, but that could be a factor with you know, any autoimmune yeah. conditions. Well, with any autoimmune, that's the thing I think that is missed in allopathic medicine is that an autoimmune disease, all of them tend to have similar triggers. There are some uniqueness among them, but similar triggers. And we need to address those triggers, not just go, oh, you got this or that. And that may be some genetic factors or weak link organ systems play a role in where it's going to manifest. But we also know as practitioners that most autoimmune diseases don't come in singlets. We get people who have one, there's most likely another one. And if we test for it, we'll probably see that there are. And I think it could be very helpful probably in somebody who does get diagnosed with one autoimmune disease to do a test like an array, like they have it by Brennamerica or Cyrex or something like that, to see what other antibodies are happening before the disease sets in. Because the antibodies, we know that they come three to four years before, in some cases, we get disease. And so we get symptoms when there's some destruction going on, when there's some serious stuff going on. Wouldn't it be nice <laughs> to be able to find that out before it happens and after? So I think that there's so much we can do here with autoimmune and following autoimmune type protocols, which I don't believe in protocols, by the way. I call it a framework. I have an autoimmune framework that we follow as practitioners to go, look at this, look at this, ask these questions, evaluate toxins, evaluate mold, evaluate all these things so that we know what the triggers are for that particular individual. I agree. And I will say that a lot of people with the antibodies for Graves also have the antibodies for Hashimoto. So you're absolutely right. As far as if you have one autoimmune condition, you're more likely to develop 
other autoimmune conditions. And I also agree that they do it backwards. They should be testing autoantibodies initially and not wait until the thyroid is out of range and then they'll test the antibodies. But like you said, the antibodies are what come out positive first and many times years before, especially of Hashimoto's. It could actually be some cases like 10 years or longer that you have those elevated autoantibodies, but they just testing typically the TSH and they won't do anything with the antibodies until the TSH is outside of the lab reference range, not the optimal reference range, which is the difference between lab and optimal ranges. Huge. And we covered that on a previous episode. So people who want to get freshened up on that, go there. So I know that you mentioned the viral and more likely we, I think more commonly we would see a transient hyperthyroidism versus a transient hypo. In other words, they have this bad virus and then it develops. And maybe you've been doing this more into the thyroid realm than I have. Is that true? And how do we know if they have this transient hyperthyroidism because of the viral condition versus it is a long-term thing that needs to be looked at more deeply. You mean, how would you know if it's subacute thyroiditis compared to Graves' disease? Or is that I what guess you're that's asking? it, yeah. With subacute thyroiditis, you are right. It typically presents as hyperthyroidism initially, and usually it is transient. It's anywhere from like one month to maybe three or four months, but usually like mm-hmm. it's one, two months. And then actually a lot of times the person will switch to hypo. <laughs> They'll actually be transiently hypo for a short mm. period of time. And then most of the time they'll become euthyroid where they have normal thyroid hormone levels. And that's one reason why with subacute thyroiditis, they usually won't want to recommend antithyroid medication such as methimazole because the doctor will know that the person will eventually become hypo mm. and they don't want someone to be on antithyroid medications. Now, as far as how do they know this, one way is by testing the antibodies. If you do the test for mm-hmm. Graves' disease antibodies, like thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulins, and if they're elevated, then you could usually conclude that the person has Graves. Another tool they use, which I'm not a huge fan of, but a lot of endocrinologists use what's called the radioactive iodine uptake test, which pretty much, as it implies, measures the uptake of iodine. And the higher the uptake, usually that's more common with Graves' disease. So they'll sometimes they'll use that as a diagnostic tool. I mean, definitely, I would say if you're going to do that, do the antibodies first. And really, right. if you get the positive antibodies, to me, there's no reason to do the uptake test. Or if someone's experiencing eye symptoms, like not just dryness, but a lot of people with Graves have what's called thyroid eye disease, Graves ophthalmopathy. And so if someone's has like bulging or swelling of the eyes along with hyperthyroidism, mm-hmm. then that's also a good indication that they have Graves disease. So those are usually yeah. like three of the methods, but the most common would be looking at antibodies. Looking and then antibodies. again, a lot of endocrinologists look at that uptake test. And they don't look at antibodies because they don't know what to do with it. That's the problem, right? Okay, so there's antibodies. So what am I going to do? And I'm a big fan of definitely a TPO and antithyroglobulin. But depending on the history, I'll throw in the TSI as well. Because we want to know before the thyroid gets completely destroyed. So do you have, are there particular tests that you like and also signs that you look for to help figure out what's going on with this person? Let me say this. So when someone comes into my office, I should also mention these days I'm working mostly remotely. So it's actually not anymore <laughs> coming no, to my office. But usually when they work with me, usually they've already been diagnosed with hyperthyroidism or Graves disease. If someone hasn't, 
then I'll definitely recommend doing a full thyroid panel, which a lot of times I have to recommend anyway. Sometimes I'll come in just having, in the case of Hashimoto's, a lot of times I'll just do the TSH. With hyperthyroidism, usually they'll at least do a free T4, but they won't always do a free T3. I usually don't recommend reverse T3 with hyperthyroidism because most of the time it's going to be elevated. So it really doesn't give me much information. Mm -hmm. So usually I'm going to recommend if they haven't done so already, a TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone, free T3, free T4. And then, yeah, as far as antibodies go, definitely that TSI, thyroid stimulating immunoglobulins. Some labs will test for TRAB, TSH receptor antibody, and TSI Mm. is a type of TRAB. I prefer TSI because it's a little bit more specific. It's not a bad idea to also, like you said, test for other antibodies. I mean, I can't say I do like, I know Cyrix Labs, they have, I think it's the Array 5 and other labs. Like 36 different antibodies. Yeah, maybe I should do that. I can't say I do that, but I guess doing the Hashimoto's antibodies. But the thing is also, let's say even if we know someone has Graves or someone just has Hashimoto's, approach is going to be very similar. Even if they show up as having like three or four other antibodies, the approach really isn't going to change. It's going to be trying to find triggers, underlying imbalances. It's really the symptom management aspect. So if they have hyperthyroidism, of course, we're going to treat them differently than someone who has hypothyroidism. Right. But that's the symptom part of it. Really, when you look at the underlying triggers, whether it's MS or whether it's Graves or colitis, there's a lot of inflammation. You manage the inflammation, you get rid of the triggers, get the diet cleaned up. There's those things that we do. So let's talk about the signs because I want people to make sure that they're seeing this because untreated Hashimoto's can make a person miserable but it's not necessarily going to kill them. But untreated graves where the palpitations and the heart rate and all that can be very dangerous. So how do they distinguish it other than losing weight versus gaining weight and rapid heart rate versus sluggish? Is there anything else that you would throw in there that we should be aware of as practitioners seeing people? I mean, those are some of the main symptoms. (laughs) Definitely increased resting heart rate, heart palpitations, sometimes tremors, And the weight loss, so like when I dealt with Graves, I lost 42 pounds, but I will say a decent number of people actually gain weight. So not everybody with hyperthyroidism loses weight. I actually consulted with someone today who was frustrated because she was like, oh, I have hyperthyroidism and everybody that I see with hyperthyroidism in like the Facebook groups are losing weight, but I'm actually gaining weight. So it's again, more common to lose weight but some people gain weight, looser stools with hyperthyroidism, everything sped up. So loose stools, sometimes diarrhea, anxiety is very common. Mm. So if someone is very anxious, has increased resting heart rate, losing weight. Again, I mean, it could be other things, but yeah, definitely you would want to maybe start thinking about thyroid. Mention um, you know, the symptoms of thyroid eye disease. So if someone's having like yeah. eye swelling or bulging, bulging or experiencing double vision, So that's another common sign because everything's revved up. Insomnia also is is quite common. And yeah, so I would say those are really the more common, the more classic symptoms. And and not everybody has all those symptoms. Like when I dealt with Graves, I definitely had elevated resting heart rate and palpitations. I didn't feel anxious. I know stress was a factor. So I was in denial about the impact stress had on me. But but again, not everybody has every single one of those symptoms. Right, um, like anything, yeah. right? We have textbook yeah. disease and then we have real people and we have to distinguish. But when you talk about that, 
I could see if somebody has one or two of those symptoms that it might be overlooked. So for example, if somebody's having loose stools and anxiety, we might be going down the route of healing their leaky gut and getting them on decreasing their transit time. And, and we might be looking at neurotransmitter type support with the anxiety as opposed to looking at that if they don't have the weight loss and the rapid heart rate. So I think it's important to keep these things in mind and really like go below the covers to make sure that we're not missing this. Yeah, definitely agree. So you dealt with this without the medication and without the radiation, without the ablation. So you saved your thyroid, basically, which is very fitting that that's what your podcast is, Save My Thyroid. So how common is that, that you can help people to not have to go down that path? How does it work with your patients? And how do you get people to actually do the things you're explaining to them they need to do? Yeah, well, the last question, it's a challenge with any autoimmune condition as far as patient <laughs> compliance can be a challenge, especially with the diet. But as far as helping people save their thyroid, I mean, there's a real good chance, like the percentage is very high if people do follow the recommendations. The symptom management aspect, I can't say that everybody could manage it naturally. There are some people that do need to take the medication. So I took the herbs bugleweed and motherwort. Bugleweed is an mm -hmm. herb with antithyroid properties. And I'd say probably like 70% of the people who take bugleweed, it seems like it helps. But then the other 25 to 30%, it doesn't help. And there, there's other things people could take, like higher doses of L-carnitine, lithium orotate or lithium carbonate as well, but that requires a prescription. So there are some other natural methods, even potassium iodide, which is controversial, the iodine and yeah. thyroid health and all that, but higher doses of potassium iodide, something I typically don't recommend, but that also could, in some cases, lower thyroid hormone. So symptom management, again, that does depend on the person. Some people do need to take antithyroid medications such as methimazole, or in some cases is one called PTU. But as far as with Graves, like reversing the autoimmune component, just like any other autoimmune condition, there's a high probability. I mean, some people are more challenging than others. Sometimes we need to dig a little bit deeper when it comes to finding someone's triggers. And again, the compliance is something obviously we have no control. All we could do is just try our best to work with them right. and encourage them and try to hold them accountable as much as we can. But yeah, without question, I get people who commit to the program or commit to working with me. And again, I try to prepare them before they work with me and just let them know that it's not going to be easy and it's going to take some time. But there's still some people who just will be like, oh, I just have like, you know, I'm like 95% gluten free and not realizing that 5% could be a factor or maybe they're not consistent with the supplements. So we definitely see that. But there's also people who at least tell me like I've been doing everything and they still aren't getting the results. And then to me, that's not a sign, oh, we can't help them. That's just a sign that we're missing something. Right, you know, we exactly. need to dig deeper. People do hit roadblocks. And I know it's easy to get discouraged, but it's, again, it's a complex condition. And when it comes to, when you're looking at the alternative, like getting radioactive iodine thyroid surgery, I know in my situation, I would have done everything to avoid that, which I did. Of course, I took a natural approach, but it wasn't easy in my case. But even if it was, a much longer process, I'm pretty sure I would have stuck, stuck with, with it because I yeah. didn't want to get surgery or radioactive iodine. Right. And, and it's interesting because that's how when we work with people, regardless of what the condition is or diagnosis is, 
they have to do the work and it's not going to be easy. And I think as practitioners, we owe it to them to tell them that you've got to do the work and it's not going to be easy because there's so much press out there and there's so many good marketers out there trying to sell the latest and the greatest super supplement that's going to work for curing a disease. And it just doesn't work that way. So I think it's really important that we prepare people and that they know the downside of if they make the choice not to follow the protocols, then, and again, protocols, whatever the plan is for them, because I hate the word protocol because it implies that there's one size fits all Mm -hmm. and there's not. But really, I think that we have to explain to them. And I don't want to say it's a fear tactic, but I'll say, look, this is your alternatives. You give up the chocolate cake, you give up the whatever, you work at this, you do some meditation, you get the emotional stuff handled, or you go into surgery and you have your thyroid removed and you're on medication for the rest of your life and constantly trying to keep it balanced. You get to choose. And I think it's important for us as practitioners to let people know that This is what I've done that works. Yeah, we're going to fine tune it and find if there's some unique situations for you. But if you don't follow this basic and you don't get on a better diet and you don't take care of yourself, either stop exercising so much or start exercising some more, whatever, then I can't help you. I don't have a magic bullet in my thing. I have a magic wand that I say, it's broken. It's plastic. There's no such thing as one that works. And if you're willing to do the work and to do what we're explaining to you that we know reverses autoimmune disease. Look at people like Terry Walls, who is in a wheelchair and now she's bicycling and teaching around the world and inspiring people. We know that even with the severe autoimmune diseases like that, that not to say that Graves isn't severe, but I'm saying like what we've given as a death sentence for most people, it can be reversed. And we know it, but you can't do it like saying, I'm going to do this part of your protocol and this part, but not this part. We only can do it all together. So I really appreciate that we as practitioners are in a position to help find what's going on and also to find the solutions that we can give them this herb or that herb, and maybe this food works for them and this doesn't. But overall, they can't keep hitting themselves over the head with a hammer and expect to feel good. And that's what a lot of people are doing. So and encourage people. I really appreciate what you're doing out there because the endocrinologists don't really know, right? They haven't been trained in it. Or if they hear about it, they like, oh, but I didn't learn that in medical school. So therefore it must not be true. And how many people do we meet that are like that? Yeah, I agree. One thing also to say to the practitioners listening to this is I mentioned before how I use bugleweed, but it doesn't work in everybody. And if, you know, someone is intimidated with working with someone who has hyperthyroidism, Graves' disease, again, don't be afraid to tell them that if they have to take the medication, or again, if you want to say you don't have experience dealing with the bugleweed, I mean, the only way to gain experience is to just with anything else is to, to dive into it. But again, I could understand it being scary because if someone walks in someone's office or working remotely and someone has a resting heart rate of 120 beats per minute or greater, and yeah, there is concern, well, will that person have like a thyroid storm? But again, there is a time and place for medication. I'm definitely not anti-medication, but you just need to, either way, if someone's on bugleweed, that's not addressing the cost either. It's just managing the symptoms while the person's addressing the cause. But yeah, I agree with everything you said before. I mean, you do need to kind of lay down the law and just let the 
the patient you're working with, the client you're working with, know about the consequences. If they don't, in the case of hyperthyroidism, if they don't follow the recommendations and really with any other autoimmune condition, like you said, MS could be pretty bad. Really, most autoimmune conditions can be really bad if you don't address the underlying cause. And people, I just think, again, a lot of people just don't take it seriously enough. That's right. I think they don't because they've been inundated with medicine saying, oh, don't worry about it. If you get sick, we have a pill for that. And it doesn't work that way either, as we know. But I would also encourage anybody that's listening, if you don't have a lot of experience with Graves and hyperthyroid and someone comes in and you apply all this basic stuff and they aren't getting better and you dig and and they aren't, I would say, personally me, before I would tell them to go to the endocrinologist and get the medication or have the surgery, I would say, who do I know that does have more experience and either refer or consult? with that practitioner that can help and say, oh, you missed this, you missed that. Here's a couple of things that you can try because we owe it to people to save their thyroids, to save their body parts, to make them continue their lives as a whole being, as opposed to just hit or miss throwing these various bullets at the problem and hoping that it solves. But in general, if we are working with somebody, how long would you say it would take before you go, okay, something's not working. Is it two months, three months, five months? How long does it typically happen in your practice? I know that's a loaded question, but because there's no typical because everybody's different, but I'm just, you know, give us a ballpark. Yeah. Well, I'll give my experience and then I could talk about some other patients' experiences. My experience, I knew that within a few couple of months that it was working. My heart rate was going mm-hmm. down. My palpitations was improving. There was gradual progress. And still, it took me about nine months before everything was normal. And then even after okay. that, nine months before I was like off like the bugleweed. And at that point, I didn't know would I still remain normal being off the bugleweed. So it really was probably a few months after that, just to make sure everything was stable, make sure the antibodies stayed normal and all that. Some and people, the antibodies did go down, right? That's what you're saying? They did, the yeah. Antibodies- yeah. 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 I mean, and it's weird with, as you mentioned, there's the two, the TPO and antithyroglobinate antibodies, and then there's a TSI. And when someone is recovering, it just does seem like, at least in my experience, there seems to be more fluctuations with like TPO antibodies, maybe even antithyroglobulin antibodies, when it's easy for people to freak out, you know. Right, because it'll go down and then it goes back up and they're freaked. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't see that as, I mean, I see that with TSI too, but not as much, but I would say like in the average person, if I had to give like a range, like maybe nine, 10 months on the lower side, maybe like 15 months. Again, some people it takes longer than that. And some people feel like they've been in remission, like maybe four or five months, but a lot of times it still takes work to stabilize, like it to stabilize and keep m- misleading. Sometimes you see everything looking good, but also I pay attention to antibodies. So I want to see antibodies improve. Like you said, endocrinologists, they kind of dismiss the antibodies, but that's because they're focusing more on the thyroid and not so much the immune system. But right. yeah, so that would be the range. I would say nine to like 15 months. And then is there a point where you're watching and you'll say, no, it's not getting better. It's getting like the heart rate's going up or other things like that, where you would say, look, I'm concerned for you. Yeah. I mean, again, we got to also consider at first, 
it's important to manage the symptoms. So if someone's taking bugle weed and like a month or two goes by, and if their heart rate's not improving, then we might want to consider is the bugle weed helping, making sure, of course, at first, are they on the right dosage and the potency could vary depending on what brand someone uses. But um, assuming all that's okay, do they need to be on the antithyroid medication? If someone's already on the antithyroid medication, let's say if someone, a practitioner listens to this, they're seeing a hyperthyroid patient, a Graves patient, they're on the medication. So they don't have to worry about that aspect. That's under control. So what should happen if someone's taking antithyroid medication, if they don't need it, we should start seeing things trending in the hypo direction. So if we don't see that, I would say, I mean, I usually want to see that within a few months. I mean, everybody's different. To me, like six months is too long if we're not seeing any change. So usually, I would say within, you know, two to four months, we want to start seeing some changes with the numbers heading in the right direction. I will say in the case of hyperthyroidism, this is important to mention for someone who doesn't have experience with hyperthyroidism, the TSH can take forever or what seems like forever to increase. So as the thyroid hormone levels decrease, the TSH will usually remain depressed until both thyroid hormone levels are well within the reference range. I even have a podcast episode where I, I forgot exactly what it's called, but I think it's like, how long does it take for the TSH to increase? And I put that together mm. just because it's a common concern, especially with patients looking right. and saying, oh, wow, it's been six months and my thyroid hormone levels are improving, but the TSH isn't improving. I I don't want to say I don't care about the TSH, but as long as the thyroid hormone levels continue to improve, right. eventually the TSH will increase. And the TSI, again, know. yeah. Yeah. How often are you retesting the thyroid hormones? So usually I would recommend testing the hormones like every six to eight weeks. And then okay. antibodies, it's up to the person. I mean, if they want to do it every single time they do a thyroid panel, that's fine. If they want to do it every other time, that's fine too. I do like to keep yeah. an eye on them. I'm more concerned initially with the thyroid hormone levels because we also need to consider not just the overt symptoms, but increased thyroid hormone levels also affect bone density. So you definitely want everything to be within range as soon as you can right. get them to within range. Wow. And you mentioned earlier motherwort. And is that for the heart? Because that's a that's a heart tonic, right? Correct. Yeah. So, so motherwort is more for the cardiovascular system, for the heart. I took it because I started out with bugleweed. I didn't take motherwort initially. And the bugleweed was helping. My heart rate was decreasing, but I was still having palpitations. So that's when I added the motherwort. And the motherwort in my situation helped a lot. And it does seem like it helps a lot of people as well. It's good to know. And, and what about lemon balm? <clears throat> I've heard there's a couple of things that people talk about for lowering thyroid function, lemon balm, cabbage juice. What do you think about some of those things? Yeah. So lemon balm, it's not as potent as bugleweed. I mean, not that bugleweed is super potent when like compared to like antithyroid medication, but yeah, lemon balm has nice calming effects. When I dealt with Graves, I didn't take lemon balm, but I will recommend it to a lot of patients at night, especially if they're having sleep issues. So usually yeah. I'll have them take bugleweed throughout the day, motherwort if necessary. And then if they're having sleep issues, lemon balm at night. And then I mentioned L-carnitine, which according to the research, taking two to 4,000 milligrams of L-carnitine can help to lower thyroid hormone levels. Nice. And uh, yeah, cabbage juice. Yeah, I can't say like there's goitrogens, like taking like cruciferous vegetables, cabbage and cabbage juice, broccoli, kale. So goitrogens inhibit 
thyroid activity. And it's funny because when I first started doing this and I started working, I had like some pregnant woman who had graves and they didn't want to take the medication. And it's a challenging situation because you really, during pregnancy, especially you don't want to have elevated thyroid hormone levels. And Mm -hmm. obviously it's their decision, but I did try to give some patients like larger amounts of cruciferous vegetables to see if it would have that goitrogenic effect. And honestly, I haven't really seen much of a difference with the, with the, I I honestly haven't tried concentrated cabbage juice, but I did try like larger amounts of like raw cruciferous vegetables and really it didn't do anything, honestly. So I, I, yeah, unfortunately it would, it would be great to manage it that way. Well, it would be great to manage it that way. But on the other hand, it's not good for the other side of it and taking people who are hypothyroid off of those amazing vegetables, which have so much benefit. And the thing is, years ago, I think this was for one of my recertification papers, I went and researched the whole concept of the thyroid, right? And the goitrogens. And I couldn't find good evidence. I just think that somebody looked at the mechanism, right? Because it interferes with iodine uptake. They looked at the mechanism and they looked at some studies where they injected rats with isothiocyanate and found that it lowered their thyroid function. But they also then did the same experiment and they put the iodine with it and nothing happened, right? So I didn't see any really concrete evidence. And I think it's one of those things that gets theorized And maybe there's a case or two here where somebody is drinking a gallon of cabbage juice a day and it gets passed on. That's the most common question I get when I talk to people about eating cruciferous vegetables. Oh, but I can't because I have a thyroid problem. They believe it so religiously that it's kind of scary. I agree. Yeah, the the research is weak. I don't think there's any human studies on goitrogenic foods. And yeah, I'm with you. I definitely recommend it to both my hyperthyroid and hypothyroid patients, patients with Hashimoto's. I I don't see a problem. Like you said, every now and then there'll be someone who says, yeah, I've been eating cruciferous vegetables and it feels like my thyroid is swelling. And all I could say as well, listen to your body. And if you really feel like you're having a reaction, then maybe avoid that. And and maybe it's just a specific cruciferous vegetable or maybe, and again, it's hard to tell. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you iodine and I both, deficiency. Yeah, I mean that's true too. But the volume usually it's the opposite problem: getting people to eat more vegetables. So rarely do I have people like saying, "Oh yeah, I'm eating like five cups of like raw cruciferous vegetables per day." Even in yeah. that, I don't think it's going to have like really inhibit thyroid properties. But yeah, listen to your body, and yeah, you're right. If someone right. is saying that, making sure they're not drinking that gallon of cabbage juice, as you mentioned before, or just overdoing it. Right. So is there anything else? This has been great. This has been really helpful. I'm sure everybody that's listening is getting some good insights, whether it's from the nutrients and the herbs and the whole concept of treating the autoimmune. And I I just really appreciate it. Is there anything we didn't cover that you would like to make sure that everybody knows? No, I I mean, I think we went over the more important points, obviously the signs and symptoms. And I think the big thing is making sure the person is safe while addressing the cause of the problem. I mean, what Hashimoto's, a lot of people with Hashimoto's have more subclinical hypothyroidism and they still might need thyroid hormone replacement. But like you said, it's a little bit more dire with graves when someone has really high thyroid hormone levels and a high resting heart rate. You don't want to take that lightly. So yeah, you want to do things to address the cause of the problem, but you want to make sure the person is safe 
And if they need the meds and they're not going to take it, that's fine. You just want to make sure that you're not telling them, well, that's fine. Just don't take the meds. Don't worry about it. You never want to say that. Again, there's a time and place for them to visit the endocrinologist, but yeah, we cover the triggers, talk about the triggers. And so I think we think we gave a lot, a lot of good information. Yeah. And if you want to go deeper, check out the books that, well, there's the Hashimoto's triggers and the other one is called Natural management of Graves and uh, hyperthyroidism. Nat- natural treatment solutions for hyperthyroidism and Graves disease. Yeah, and ha- and head to the website, which is Natural Endocrine Solutions. Yep, and the podcast Save My Thyroid. And then, so yeah, I would say if someone really wants to learn about hyperthyroidism, I mean, the book's a good starting point, but the the podcast might be a better resource just because it's Great. more up to date. I'm always updating it. And yeah. there's a lot of content on hyperthyroidism. I mean, it, it was meant initially to be more of a hyperthyroid podcast, just because there's already a bunch of podcasts that focus more on hypothyroidism, Hashimoto. So if someone visits the podcast, they'll notice that there's more episodes mm-hmm. that focus on hyperthyroidism. So yeah, definitely right. check out the podcast. And we'll have all that listed in the show notes. And I just so appreciate the work that you're doing and for you to be here and support our practitioners in being able to feel comfortable because I know a lot of people aren't comfortable because there's not a lot of information about it. And this is a way to build your repertoire of being able to help people. I think it's really important. So as far as you guys listening, you have the power to educate, empower, and inspire people to make the changes they need to make to get their health back. And whether they have Hashimoto's, Graves disease, or colitis, or MS, it's an autoimmune disease. And knowing the framework for working with people and removing the triggers and getting their nutrients balanced is super, super important. And hopefully, by using this information, you can help some people to keep their thyroids from being removed or destroyed, and they can save their thyroid. I love that you named your podcast that. It's wonderful. So we put together a free guide. We're going to include a lot of different things. I wasn't planning on having a section on hyper, but I'm I'm going to add a section on hyper and some of the herbs and the resources that you mentioned. And go to reinventhealthcare.com forward slash thyroid and continue to study and always be learning. You never get to the point as a practitioner where you know it all and you can be the expert on things because there's always new information coming out and you can help these people who are seeking help. And if you want to go deeper, go to inemethod.com and we can share some other trainings that we have and become part of the movement to reinvent healthcare. We need to overhaul this system. So we are the ones that do it. And I appreciate you being on this journey with us, Dr. Eric. And, uh, Until next time, shine on. Thanks for listening to Reinvent Healthcare. We are part of the movement to change healthcare for the better. If you liked this episode, leave a rating and a review. And for more resources to support you in growing a thriving and fulfilling practice, visit our website at inemethod.com.